Some women impersonate Sex in the City's Carrie Bradshaw with vast closets full of fantastic clothing. Even Sarah Jessica Parker pretends to be Carrie Bradshaw when she walks the red carpet. However, there is one woman in New York City who, if he knew her, would have been Darren Starr's real muse. Let me introduce you to Susan S. Warner, the adorable petite blonde who at 59 lost her handsome, extraordinary husband to cancer six months after her wonderful 32-year-old son died by suicide. It's now four years later. After the most challenging days and nights, Susan decided to live her best life possible. And just like that, Susan was suddenly single. Carrie may have Susan beat on exposure, but Susan has Carrie beat on life's experiences. Listen in. It's one thing to write a book, but it's another thing to get the right audience to read it. Every new author faces the same challenge. Susan S. Warner just wrote her first book, Never Say Never, Never Say Always. It's a heartbreaking yet optimistic story that covers the last six years of her life after she lost her son, then her husband six months later. This episode of Susan's podcast is all about introducing her new book to the world and what it took to get here. So Susan, tell us, why did you write Never Say Never, Never Say Always? I've been a journalist my whole life. I was a, I had my journalism degree from Boston University, and I've always written and I've always loved to write. My friends and family have been extraordinarily supportive in my writing and have always said, why don't you write the book? Why don't you write the book? And I think that it's very true in retrospect that you have to have the subject to write the book. I journaled, which I've never done before, when David died, my son, and I showed it to a friend of mine, Robin, and she said to me, you've got to write the book. I showed it or talked to my sister-in-law, Angie, about it, and she said, this is ridiculous. You have to write the book. At the time, I was dating a man, Bruce, who's in the book, and he almost bullied me into writing this book. You know, you're so talented. How do you not do this? This is disgusting, etc." So I started writing essays and short stories, and they got published. They were in Newsweek. They were in, um, I were on radio shows. Uh, the newsletter, Three Tomatoes, picked it up. And I, I wanted to move on further with this and speak. And whenever a speaking engagement became almost real, the comment was, where's the book? Where's the book? So with your help, Lois, and being bullied a little by Bruce, and some encouragement from the outside, I decided to sit down, take those notes, and write the book. So I want to ask you, you said you use the terminology, and a lot of people don't understand what it is. What is journaling, and how did you do it? That's very interesting. Some people are very committed to, to a journal, whereby they write on, in it weekly or every other day or daily, and they tell about their daily activities. That never really interested me. The only time I ever kept a journal is when I traveled. What I did in this case was took the old speckled composition notebook that you can't mm -hmm. take the pages out of because I didn't want to be able to destroy anything. And I wrote notes to myself, ideas, feelings, things I was embarrassed about, things I didn't want mm. to tell anyone, but I wanted to write down. And I have this odd habit of writing on the diagonal when I write notes on a lined piece of paper. I don't know why I do it, and I do. And I wrote many things that 
ended up to me being really important in my story. Things like, I'm living in a box, or things like, I need to find me with exclamation marks. And then sometimes a narrative of pages of things that I felt or needed to get off my chest. So this was really a composition notebook of ideas and thoughts and experiences that I didn't want to forget. I even went as far as to copy texts or emails from people that were important and cut, cut them out and staple them in the journal. Oh, my God. Yeah, they were, they're important to me. And I'm journaling again because I'm hoping there'll be a, a chapter two book to this. So, you know, it's really interesting that you said that because I think that anyone that listens to this podcast who is really in a really depressed state or stressed out, uh, when they hear about journaling, they're going to try it too. And that might be a great relief and it might be the push to something else that they need to do or want to do that they can get involved in and you know, focus, get the focus off the of misery every day and just, turn, their, and turn their life around. Yeah. And turn their even, life around. Even if something is bothering you, I tend to spin about thoughts when I go to bed or in my sleep. And I've learned to get up and write them down. I have hmm. a notebook next That's to my bed and I write them down now. And it's almost releasing them. Once it goes off my fingers, it's released from my head so that I know I can take care of it in the morning, but I don't have to spin about it all night. Right. So I agree it, with you. Yeah. Writing it down. It's mm -hmm. committing to it, and it's getting it off your head and onto the paper. And I think it's healthy for a lot of people. So what were your expectations when you decided to write this book? What were you thinking about? Oh, my expectations, they've changed. So initially, it was the project unto itself. That could I really get a book published? I was pretty confident in my writing skills, although I did go through an imposter syndrome when it was ready to be published. What if nobody likes it? What if it's horrible? What if it's not real? Um, but my expectations were, what would it feel like? What am I going to feel like when I actually am a published author? When I actually can say, I'm a writer, by legitimacy, I'm an author. So those were my opening expectations. They've changed now to, I want my message heard. I love that. I love it. You do. You know, there's a saying, if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, did it make a sound? Well, if a book is published and it's not read well, did it, did it make any impact? Mm -hmm. That's my comparison. So I am not looking for fame, fame and fortune on this. I'm looking to get my word heard. I have pages and pages of emails from people that I've known in the past or never knew or have picked up the book and told me how incredible it's been for them, how it's given them a new perspective, how it's changed their lives. And this is just a little microcosm. I want to go macro. I want the world to read this and maybe feel better about life after reading it. That's beautiful. And you're, well, committed. you're committed. I am to committed. make this happen. Yes. I am committed. Yeah, right. I am. So who, so who is your target audience and why should they read Never Say Never, Never Say Always? And I mean, like, what do you think they're going to get from it and who are these people? The first immediate thought would be my demographic are people probably over 50 who have endured loss. But then I rethink that and I think about my daughter who's under 50, who has endured loss. I think about her friends that have written me, who have read the book, 
who have endured loss. We've all lost, whether it's a grandparent or a parent or a sibling or a friend or an animal that we've loved, we've all felt grief. But more than the story of loss and recovering from profound grief, because that's probably the nut of it, is an optimistic view in life of moving forward, not moving on from your experiences, and having choices. We all have choices to make in our life, and that is exclusive of grief. We all have choices. We can choose to stay in our pajamas and watch Netflix all day, or we can choose to get dressed and get out in the world. We can choose to learn, go to school, take a course, go to the museum, or we can not. We all have choices, and I think this book is best about choices and, mm -hmm. and living your best life. We all deserve that. It's like when someone said to me when I had my grand, the birth of my granddaughter, Maddie, the comment was, you deserve it. We all deserve it. Mm -hmm. I don't corner the market on grief, and I don't corner the market on happiness. We all deserve goodness, and we all deserve joy. If you can't accept joy, will it still come to you? The adage is it won't. I'm here to accept it. I know what bitter tastes like, and I like sweet a whole lot better. Mm -hmm. Right. So my target audience, again, you would think the demographic is probably 50 plus. But Absolutely, I think yeah. that young people, I think that young people have a lot to learn from it. I have heard from a few young people that it has been very emotionally grabbing for them. I've heard from older people the same thing. So I'm going to say it's a universal target audience. That's good. So I want, I want to um, also ask you, because uh, I think it's important, because there's a lot of people that will be listening to this podcast that kind of a negative on the world. So because you touched on being positive, what do you say to someone when you say this book could help you when they when they just kind of like using the grief as their excuse to be a victim? You know what I've truly said, and it's really simple? Read it and then talk to me. I said it to a lot of people, people in media, it's kind of a cocky, it, it sounds really cocky that I'm so confident. But I am somewhat confident, read it, and then come back to me, and we'll discuss why you can't move forward, why you're stuck, why you can't get off the bed, the floor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Read it. It's 165 pages. It's a four-hour read. It's a four-hour listen on the audiobook. It's me. Um, I do the audiobook. And it's emotional, and I think it's good if you prefer that. Read it. Everybody I know has said they sat down and didn't get up. So... I can't tell you, in, in an elevator pitch, I can make you happy, but I can tell you if you read my book, I think I can give you resources and tools to live a better life. Beautifully. Beautifully said. <clears throat> so I have to ask you the billion-dollar question. How does it feel to be an author? I'm so proud. I have to tell you, I, I am giddy elated to see my book in print. And it's so funny because so many of the people close to me have said, the boys are really proud of you. And that would be David and Michael, my husband and my son. Mm -hmm. And I am proud of me. Uh, it's something I've probably always fantasized about doing, but it's a reality. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. It's there for the buy. People have bought it. At one point, I was number one in one category on Amazon. I'm really happy, really happy. That's beautiful. Do people treat you differently? <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit more legitimate, I think. 
I think I, I think I gained some, you know, legitimacy with this that yes, I've always been a writer. Yes. I've always written well, but I had a book out there. So yes, I think they do a little bit. I think there's a little bit more respect. I do. <laughs> um, Did any, know, anything so in particular happen or you just could feel the way they look at you or the way they listen to you now? No, I think it's more about the very subtle things that people have said to me who are close to me. Um, and circling around, we're so proud of you. And, you know, my sister in law, Angie, said, you know, I was in the middle of this storm and yet I learned things and I cried and I felt things that I didn't feel before. So it's, it's a pride. It's, it's, I'm proud. I'm proud. And I, love and that I think woman. people, every, every time yeah. you tell me something, that that woman said, where did your brother find her? Oh, my God. I love that woman, too. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. She's a good anyway, person. I know. It's great. Do you often stare at your book and think, oh, my God? <laughs> yes, it goes with the proud, giddy. I do. You know, the cover of the book is very moving. And I think it was a really good choice. It's a picture of Michael and I. He's staring at the camera as if he knows, and I'm dreamier. And right. I think it's very, very, very telling of what's inside the book. So, yes, it, you know, the author's copies are stacked up next to me. And I do can't believe it sometimes. I got the hardcover that came out last. And it's elegant. That's the only yes. word I can put for it. That mm -hmm. was, that made my heart beat fast. It's so elegant. So, yeah, I, I'm. You should have a display in your house and in your apartment <laughs> on the coffee table of like five, six books, you know, with, uh, you know, with it's on candles. my night table. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's wonderful. like a memorial. Yeah. No, yes, and no, it should it's have on candles. My night table. Yeah, candles <laughs> and fabulous ceramics. Really, really great. So I really have to, I really thought about this a lot, but how many times while writing your book did you experience, you know, some form of, PTSD, like, 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 I, I know what you're saying. I, I know, I, I know what I'm saying too, but I don't know if everybody else would, you know, that's listening, like, you know, like there's times during the day I could be in the shower, I could be, you know, in bed, I could be, you know, in the kitchen, and all of a sudden I'll remember something I did, you know, 15, 20 years ago or something I said, and I like, I duck because I'm so embarrassed. So I, I can't imagine when writing this, all the trauma that you went through uh, and then writing this out, did any of it hit you at different times? Yeah. Um, the comment that I can best wrap around this is everybody wanted to say to me, bet this was really cathartic. Bet this was really great for you. And I'd look at them and say, not so much. <laughs> they wanted to believe it was because mm -hmm. To put pour yourself on paper like that, I said, you know, writing this book was stripping myself nude and walking down Broadway. Publishing it was walking back the other direction, nude. Mm -hmm. You know, this was as raw and nude as you can get. And that's not my persona at all. But there were things I dug deep into. There's one chapter that's a conversation with David and Michael and myself, and I obviously answered the questions. And they're not sweet answers and giddy. They're, they're deep and raw. And it hurt. And I may have gone places that I don't know I needed to go. I heard Anderson Cooper on Howard Stern say that he feels that he never dealt with the um, grief of his father and his brother. And now he's working to deal with that so many years later. Certainly this book has made me deal with the grief. 
of my husband and my son. I can't mm-hmm. say that I'm tapping anything down. But reliving it all day to day was not always easy. I will tell you, I miss it. I miss sitting with them. I miss the stories. I miss the feelings. I miss writing the book. It's a bit of a void. That's pretty profound. That's unbelievable. <laughs> well, well, then the next natural question would be, did you ever want to abandon the project? Nope. Never once. With your encouragement, with the publisher's encouragement, I never once wanted to abandon this project. I'm a very unique writer. I sit down and write on a one-edit writer. I mean, I go back and reread it and sometimes use synonyms, but basically I write the chapters in one sitting. And I looked forward to those days, and it wasn't every day I wrote. I looked forward to those days when I would lock myself up, either in my study or on my bed, and write and not get up for four, five, six hours and just enmesh myself in it. No, I never wanted to abandon this project. And I didn't know what the ending would be. And that was haunting me. It was about a year of the project. And then as not to ruin the plot in the book, but when my daughter last August told me she was pregnant with my first grandchild and the tears flew out of my face and the hysteria subsided, I knew that Madeline, my granddaughter, would would pick up the cycle of life and take this book where it needed to go. So I'm no, I never now. wanted to abandon it. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. knew I wanted to write a love letter to my granddaughter, and that's what it is, a love letter to my granddaughter. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, and, and she's worth it. <laughs> um, it it's, uh, it's really a great, you know, objective, you know, and a perfect. It was. Note. Right. It is. It so is. How, did you, how did you know how to structure the book? You never wrote a book before. Correct. And that scared me a little bit. And I started with post-it notes because I had seen other authors do that. And that did help. Because this was a chronology, basically, it was not that difficult to structure. What was more difficult to structure where the chronology goes off into emotion and abstractions, like friendship, like fear, like trust. Um, like when worlds collide, which you have to read it to find out what that funny chapter is about. That came. It just came. I was sitting at my desk the day I said, I know the next chapter. It's going to be a conversation with Michael and David. And I don't know that anybody's ever done that. Um, I think a lot in the shower. Um, I would think about where I was going. I, I would put a, walk in the streets, go to, with the dog walking in Riverside Park, and it would come to me. This book was was easy that way. I don't know if anything else I write will be quite as easy, but this flowed quite easily. Came right off the tongue. Yeah, it did. Right through the hands to the keyboard, it did. Right. Uh, Did you ever get writer's block? No. No. You know, I had notes. I had had essays I had written. I had my journal. I knew where I was going. So not really. No. And you, because because it was a type of memoir, it went, it was free spirited. It went where I wanted it to go. And if a chapter were five pages and one was nine, it didn't matter. That structure wasn't important. So not really. The story, the story unfolded without me being the protagonist. Mm-hmm. And then I was, and then I was. So where, where and when did you write? Oh, you know, was <laughs> so it was over middle the middle of the night, the early in the morning. You know, it was in the, the park. It was over the course of a year. 
so I wrote in two locations. I wrote in the Hamptons and I wrote um, in my apartment, most of it in my apartment in the city. Most of it's staring out the window I'm staring out right now. Most of it with Winston sitting next to me. Mm-hmm. And once in a while, it would be propped up in bed if it was a stormy day or I just wanted to be there. But for the most part, it was staring out this window at my desk, comfortable, and with my notebook in front of me, and off I went. Hmm. So you certainly had the discipline to do it. That's my personality. Yeah. You know, I was given dates by the publisher, and I don't think I missed one. And I think I turned it in before due date. Yeah, Hmm. I'm a very disciplined person. So we talked about this before, but... I just want to make sure, you know, that the listeners hear this. Why is your story so important? We all suffer loss. And dealing with loss and grief is not societally well done at all. We either, you know, brush it under the carpet or we don't function. And I think it's time that people understand that they're not alone that we, we all suffer loss in some way, shape, or form. It's the life cycle. We can't avoid it. And if we bring it to the top, if we keep these people present, if we move forward with them, if your grandmother was a massive influence on you and you cooked with her and you talked to her, once she passes away, you don't have to forget her. You don't have to erase her. She is a part of your being. Right. Certainly is your child, certainly is your spouse, certainly are friends of yours, Everybody imprints you in your life. And -hmm. if they're important and cause grief, then hold on to that imprint and be that person. My husband was a really wonderful, wonderful man and and very kind. And sometimes when I don't want to do something and I know I should do it, it's the right thing, I hear him call my pet name and say, just do it. What's the difference? And I do it. And I hear him (laughs) say it. Mm-hmm. say, you know, Susan, what, and it wasn't Susan, he would say, it was his pet name for me because he never called me Susan. What's mm-hmm. the difference? It's not a big deal. And he's right. And I hear it. And and it's made me a better person. Taking everything, the love I had from David, the love I had from Michael, and moving forward, appreciating that I had 32 years of David, which is more than most people get in a lifetime. And certainly my 38 years with Michael was more love than any other married person could imagine. So mm-hmm. I count myself fortunate there. And then I take them with me all the time. Not, not weirdly, just in philosophy, in love, in smiles. Mm-hmm. I talk about that. I love when people tell me stories. I love when people talk about them. I just heard from a colleague of my husband's at R.H. Macy who wrote me the most beautiful expose on reading the book. She had just lost her companion and, and Michael's smile and his integrity and how it, this journey has helped her in her journey. So that's wow. so gratifying. Wow. Yeah. A, I have a lot of those. Yeah. I have a lot of those. Yeah. I'm very proud of them. So Susan, how difficult is it to get attention for your book? Because I know a lot of <laughs> publishers and producers of TV shows and other writers are going to listen to this because we're going to jam it down <laughs> their throat. No, so uh, please. Uh, yeah. You so, know, to quote to, to quote the plot of Just Like This, when Sarah Jessica Parker, as Carrie Bradshaw, is publishing her fourth or fifth book and, and banks to get publicity on it, and the comment is, you know where the publishing world is, it's so hard, and it's so hard to be a newbie 
everybody goes after the established and those people that, you know, ring the bank. And yet new people have so much newness to give. Mm-hmm. And I'm just banging it out there, hoping that, you know, Anderson Cooper and grief and, and Colbert with grief and, and the, the batch, the golden bachelor and everything I can tell people about dating, which in the book is actually quite amusing. I'm relevant. Let me tell my story. I think you'll love it. And I think I can add to people's enjoyment and to their well-being. So it's really hard as a new person, really hard without a machine behind you. And what do you think they should say? Once they, you know, want to talk about you, what would you like their their soundbite message to be? Well, that's twofold. If you want to talk about dating after 60, I got a great story about that, and I can tell you a lot. If you want to talk about recovery from grief and moving forward, that's my forte. You want to talk about suicide? My son was a suicide. I, I've got something to say about that. Predominantly, suicide is selfless, not selfish. Mm-hmm. So I can go a lot of ways. Use me as a resource. Read my book. Listen to me. I, I've got so much to say to people out there that could make their lives easier. Hmm. Love it. So, <laughs> um, wrapping this up, what will you will you write a second book? I mean, what 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 do you think the topic is going to be? Uh, have you thought well, about I'm it? Certainly not giving that away. I have two things in the hopper. One would be the next chapter here, and another one is a fictional really good netflix story that i am oh, you're dying on developing. That. you're dying to work with hollywood aren't you dying to work with netflix i really want to if anybody ever watches um the adaptation from the new york times the the love column second modern season, love first episode, modern love modern love mm-hmm. yep first season second season first episode is my life and I want a shot at that. I want a shot of, of doing a treatment. I think it would be sensational. So yes, I do. So I, I can either very happily adapt this for somebody, or I would like to actually write something that I think is really clever, that could be a great Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Apple, anybody who would like to pick it up, treatment. So those well, two are the two the, places. The I may time, do simultaneously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the next time we see you, you'll be with the Hollywood sign. So I'm sure it's going to happen. <laughs> if you're disciplined, if you're disciplined, you will make it happen. No matter what if you want it badly on. enough, right? Yeah. Yep. You will do it. You know, you just have to keep focus and discipline. You know, it's hard to I'm do. Trying. Yeah. But, you know, you can do it. So anyway, this is great. This is great. And, you know, we're going to get it out there to everybody because, you know, those that need to read it, those that need to do press on it, we're coming after you. Okay, thank, thank you, you Susan. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.